Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 25th, we're studying Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. Jesus goes from Nazareth to Capernaum, where his ministry of casting out demons, healing, and teaching continues his work for the salvation of humanity. Help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Giese. Dr. Giese serves as professor of religion at Concordia University in Texas. He is also the author of the commentaries on James, 2 Peter, and Jude in the Concordia Commentary Series from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Giese, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, thank you so much. It's a blessing to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Dr. Giese, let's talk a little bit of context. We're here at the end of Luke chapter 4. What should we know about what Luke's been doing before this, some of the particularities of the gospel according to St. Luke that'll help us with the text we've got today? Yeah, it's important to look at the broader context of Luke and some of the main emphases. and uh, Just look at author and purposes and so on. First of all, the author, uh, Luke, the great physician and traveling companion associate, of St. Paul, gospel written somewhere between 55 to 60 AD and dedicated to Theophilus, a likely benefactor of Luke and uh, travels. Uh, also, some of the characteristics, emphases of the gospel. For example, there's a, an emphasis on joy at the announcement of the good news of the coming of Jesus in human flesh. We especially saw this at Christmas time, at the joy of the shepherds and those who are uh, gathered and hear that saving message. There is also a, a special interest for Jesus seeking and saving the lost. And that is very much apparent in Luke 15 with the great parables of uh, those who uh, are lost and are sought out by the Savior's care. Also, an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and we see that also in our text for today, uh, Spirit especially as he's supporting Jesus at important times in his earthly ministry. Also, emphasis on prayer, especially Jesus praying before important occasions. Also, focus on the important women surrounding Jesus and his earthly ministry. Uh, one particular <clears throat> emphasis in, in Luke, uh, just mention it, but then look more closely, is Jesus as the universal Savior savior of all and that uh, is articulated in luke in some particularly important ways but you, you noted something that's vital to view uh, namely the switch of the location of jesus ministry from nazareth to capernaum and we observe that shift uh, immediately in our text uh, just before our text Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry after his baptism and temptation. He's in his hometown of Nazareth, and there it is Sabbath day, and Jesus reads scripture, and specifically Isaiah chapter 61, 
And there he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says that that text is fulfilled in their hearing in that Nazareth synagogue. But uh, here the scandal of familiarity uh, is apparent. They are offended what he says. He's too familiar. How can the son of Joseph say these things about himself? And they reject him. And as a result, <clears throat> he moves the location of his emphasis, his earthly ministry from Nazareth to Capernaum. And Capernaum becomes an important center for the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, that, again, about that Isaiah text, actually in the text that we're going to study, we'll see fulfillment of that, of his proclamation of freedom for prisoners and release the oppressed. But Capernaum becomes an important center for the ministry of Jesus. It's there that he calls five of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uh, fishermen, then also Matthew, who is a tax collector. And it's there in Capernaum that he uh, speaks important messages on humility, stumbling blocks, relationships, and so on. And many healings take place, uh, such as a healing of Jairus' daughter, healing of a centurion servant. That's also in Capernaum that we see that there are positive relations between uh, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, there's a, a centurion who is favored among them, and uh, some Jewish residents encourage Jesus to help this person. So the shift of location from Nazareth to Capernaum, but also in our text, we have a hint of another trajectory of Jesus' earthly ministry. His face is set toward Jerusalem, toward Judea. It's there that would be the fulfillment of his saving ministry and his death and resurrection. So that location shift is important. But I just want to—go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, could you do a little bit of geography for us? Where—I mean, I know <clears throat> Galilee is the northern part of the land of Israel, but in yes. terms of Nazareth, Capernaum, what's the—whereabouts where, are they in Galilee? Uh, they, so the north by the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth uh, a bit further southwest of Capernaum. So uh, it says in our text that Jesus went down to Capernaum. So there's an elevation change. He goes down a bit northeast to Capernaum. Uh, so a downward trajectory. And uh, so the same region, not far away, but uh, again, difference in elevation and difference uh, of town, and apparently a difference of, <clears throat> of outlook and uh, how they receive Jesus. Yeah, and that's one, uh, the going down to Capernaum, I appreciate you bringing that out, because generally speaking, I think in our context, when we talk about which way you're going, we think of, you're going to go up if you're going north. That's We kind of right. read it like that. But in the scriptures, usually it deals with elevation. So it goes down to Capernaum, right. that's down in elevation. Go ahead, Dr. Giese, you were going to say a few few more things. Uh, that that's correct, and, and important to note about the way that Scripture speaks about that. And so also we see in context, Jesus speaks about going up to Jerusalem, right. and there that's similar referring to uh, an elevation change. But I especially wanted to highlight an important uh, and overarching aspect of the Gospel of Luke of Jesus as the universal Savior that very much becomes prevalent and as a focus of uh, things in our text and also just beforehand that give meaning to what Jesus is doing <clears throat> in our text. Jesus is indeed presented as the universal Savior, Savior for both Jew and Gentile, Savior for all nations, 
We see that, for example, uh, with Simeon, as he is blessed to see the Savior, the baby Jesus, and refers to, although they're in the temple, Jewish dead Israelite temple, he refers to Jesus as the light for revelation to the Gentiles. Or also in John the Baptist is receiving people who are coming to coming repentance to be baptized. We see also Gentile soldiers who come to him and they, they ask, how is it that we are uh, in faith to carry out a vocation? And uh, John refers to them. Uh, or also, as uh, Luke speaks about John the Baptist, he refers to Isaiah 40 in that all mankind will see God's salvation. So in these things, we see that universal emphasis aspect of the Savior, but especially, especially approaching our, our context, uh, we see the uh, there is the baptism of Jesus, and then we go into the genealogy of Jesus, which is especially vital in this context. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy goes from Abraham to Christ uh, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. There's so many fantastic Old Testament texts to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. But the universal emphasis of Luke, he takes the genealogy, uh, he goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam. He brings us back to the creation context, the universal emphasis of the first human. And in that last text of the last verse of the genealogy, he says, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he refers to Adam as the son of God. And then right after that comes the temptation of Jesus. So we see here, Luke brings us back to the creation context, to the beginning, and introduces a new Adam, the second Adam, the better Adam, the true son of God, who now is going to, just like in a creation context, is going to undergo temptation. But unlike the first Adam, who failed miserably, and Eve, the second Adam, the one who gets it right this time to rescue humanity, to do it right, he resists temptation and conquers over the forces of evil. He uh, quotes <clears throat> some texts from Deuteronomy uh, that are in uh, fulfillment of making up for and uh, getting it right where Israel did not. But the universal emphasis of what Jesus does and going back to creation, going back to where all things started, and Jesus as the universal savior getting things right is very significant. And there are some creation aspects that also become apparent in our text and also uh, important promise right after the fall into sin of Genesis 3.15, where it's promised that a great successor or a great uh, uh, family member who would follow would conquer the force of evil and crush the serpent's head, the force of evil and the effects of sin that have caused so much havoc through the first Adam. So Luke brings us back to creation, the beginning where the second Adam gets it right this time. Mm. When we talked about the temptation here on Sharper Iron, our, our guest then pointed us forward to Luke chapter 11, where yeah. Jesus speaks about binding the strong man and, and yeah. seeing that. I mean, I think what, what you're saying here about the new creation that Jesus is coming to bring and succeeding where Adam had failed— that's going to fit very nicely with what we're going to look at today, as again, we see Jesus 
combating the the forces of Satan and defeating them, and also this aspect of healing and the ministry that he does in, in his healing, and how that connects back to creation, and now that, that God has entered into his creation to recreate it, to restore what Adam had broken. And so I think those those themes are really going to you know, come together in, in our text and, and, of course, carry forward into the rest of the gospel. That is so important, and indeed, there are terrible effects of the entrance of sin into humanity, into the created world. Uh, obviously, the force of evil that, that caused conflict, for example, we saw that immediately with Adam and Eve, where Adam puts the blame on Eve. So already he expresses the, uh, the evil, the brokenness that is now a part of uh, humanity because of that corruption, but also sickness and death. Uh, be, uh, such a sad consequence of the entrance of sin. And so we see the promised Savior, the new Adam, dealing with also sickness, and he treats them both uh, the, uh, them similarly, because it says in, in our text, as we'll see, Jesus rebukes both the evil spirit and he rebukes the, the fever of uh, Peter's mother-in-law here. So they are similar in their uh, in their detriment that they bring and jesus treats them similarly as sad effects of sin but here the savior comes to undo and restore and again it's interesting that he uses the same word of rebuke well let's go ahead and read the text then and i and i thought about dividing it into scenes but i think i'll, I'll read the whole thing together Please. so that we can hear that very juxtaposition that you're talking about so sure. this is luke chapter 4 beginning at verse 31 and he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That's the text we've got for today, Luke 4, verses 31 to 44. Dr. Giese, we talked earlier about the difference in geography. Jesus goes down in elevation to Capernaum, still in Galilee, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. Now, we saw Jesus teaching on the Sabbath in the previous text in Nazareth. Now he's in Capernaum. But given this context that you've talked about with the new creation theme, it seems that the Sabbath day is, is pretty significant in that regard. Oh, indeed. Uh, of course, the seventh day 
this is brings us back to creation. God created it and set it apart as a day of rest. And as we learn in the Old Testament, a day to be with God, to listen to his word, to be in his presence and to hear his saving word, his word of comfort. So here we have a similar setting. Again, we're brought back to new creation context in Luke. And here we are significant on the Sabbath. These people are gathered around God and they recognize this is something special. This is unique. They were amazed at his teaching. This is um, more than uh, what they anticipated. They didn't apparently didn't fully recognize what was going on, but the readers of Luke see what is going on here. The Sabbath, that day of rest created for God's people to hear the voice of God, and they are indeed hearing the voice of God. So very significant that uh, Luke articulates that as the ministry of Jesus begins at Capernaum as they hear his voice on the Sabbath. Talk, talk more about the authority that they recognize. What does it mean that Jesus' word possesses authority? Uh, the Greek uh, being used there was a, a teaching, and it, it is the Greek word is teaching with a particular authority, and the construction there indicates an, an, an ongoing teaching that he is doing, and once again, uh, on the Sabbath, and they are, uh, there's an amazement, and this word for amazement appears when people are confronted with the voice of God, this particular special teaching, and they're blessed to recognize that, uh, that a divine authority was, uh, was obvious at his word. So here, the word become flesh speaks the word of God, and it's obvious with the divine authority that he speaks as he is, uh, continues to uh, instruct as only God can. Well, he's he's the author of the book that he's yeah. teaching. <laughs> and so that, that authority, it seems, just came through without any—I mean, he didn't have to come—like in, in the previous text, for example, you know, he reads the scroll, and there's kind of this mic drop moment. Today, the scripture's been fulfilled. Like, whoa. But, but here, I mean, as he's teaching, they recognize it just right away that mm-hmm. this guy, he's, he's doing something different than our rabbis usually do. He, he's got right. this authority that they don't have. And what, what strikes me, and I, I think it's important still in our context, is that they, they recognize this authority in Jesus' teaching before he rebukes the unclean spirit. I mean, mm-hmm. if you didn't see the authority beforehand, you, you certainly, I think, would see it when he speaks and the unclean spirit leaves. But they actually recognize mm-hmm. the authority of Jesus' word beforehand which I, I think should say something to us in our context where, you know, maybe the rebuking of unclean spirits isn't a regular occurrence in most divine services in the United States. Right. Still, right. the word that we hear, because it's Christ's word, that word still carries that same authority of Jesus. Indeed, the, the word of God is not empty. Uh, there is his divine presence with his word. So the, he is there present as his word is spoken here. It is the word of God speaking his words. So there is his presence in the flesh and his word has that obvious divine authority and they do indeed notice it as their God in flesh speaks on the Sabbath, that important day of creation. So here is the new creation being inaugurated here as the word speaks his saving word. Yeah. But once again, I mean, just the thinking through the, the previous text and the the very dramatic way that Luke presents it with this text is fulfilled in your hearing. It, maybe you don't have that same drama to the account of Jesus' teaching, but it's all still there, that that the same authority is being presented 
the word of God in the flesh is speaking the word of God written, and and it's there for these people with the full authority. So, I mean, you know, as as much as the rest of this text is going to have these spectacular moments, we don't want to miss this very beginning of the text to remember that the authority of Jesus is in the teaching, it's in his word that he's speaking. And so it, it comes out in a very spectacular way. There's now in the synagogue a man with, as Luke phrases it, a man who has the spirit of an unclean demon. So this, well, let's just talk a little bit about the the appearance of this demon-possessed man. (laughs) This kind of seems to happen in in the Gospels. Like all these, several demon-possessed people will come to Jesus and, and it's almost like they're attacking him. What? What's going on here? Why, why does Jesus attract such attention from the demons? Well, we notice a, a reason why in the words of the demon, uh, he asks Jesus of, uh, of Nazareth, so what do you want with, with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And then these especially poignant words, did you come to destroy us? And the answer is obvious in the demon's question and what he says further. Uh, did you come to destroy us? Those are words of eschatological significance. Uh, essentially, the demon is asking and essentially admitting this new era has come in the arrival of the Savior who has come to destroy the forces of evil. And we see an example of that right now in the uh, exercising of this particular demon. But this is uh, something being fulfilled, and the demon recognizes it to his dismay and dismise, demise that the Savior has come, inaugurated this new era in which the forces of evil are being destroyed. He says, did you come to destroy us? And the answer is obviously yes. Now is the time of the messianic kingdom, uh, when, which he has come to uh, destroy the force of evil. And then he says further, I know who you are the Holy One of God. So this demon recognizes uh, the Savior in the flesh. And one, they're one of the very significant names of Jesus that has Old Testament significance is used there, uh, especially in the book of Isaiah, and they're, uh, the mighty Savior and acts uh, uh, with eschatological significance. <clears throat> that name is used here as well. So it is a time, a, a recognition of doom by this, by this demon that the new age has come in which the savior has arrived to destroy these forces of evil. So that's why this demon reacts so harshly because he realizes that he, that the era, a new era, the new creation has come in which evil is going to be destroyed. It's striking that this man with the, the unclean spirit is, is there in the synagogue. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that that's not the place I think that I would have expected to, to meet the first person possessed by a demon was in the synagogue when when the devil came or when jesus went to to take the fight to the devil earlier in this chapter it was out in the wilderness but now here's the 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 demon on what you would think is is god's turf and yet he's right there it's a pretty dramatic scene actually now that i I mean i think about it you've got jesus coming and and it's like he's he's coming to say to this demon you're actually on my turf (laughs) this is this is my ground it belongs to me and again, it's that, that same thought of expelling the strong man, winning back mm-hmm. us sinners. I mean, all of those things that we saw introduced in the beginning of the chapter now are being put into practice for these for the sake of these real people gathered there at the Capernaum Synagogue. 
what you bring up is noteworthy in that uh, it's somewhat remarkable that this demon is here right in the synagogue as their uh, promised savior is proclaiming his word. But uh, often there's a, a correlation of where the word is proclaimed. There Satan is uh, attempts to be very active as well. Also in church context where the word and sacrament are present there, the devil is present as well. But thanks be to God for his saving word that indeed drives out Satan and indeed the, brings us back uh, to uh, death and resurrection. And old Adam dies and a new person uh, arises again and evil is conquered once more. But uh, indeed, Satan is very active where the word is proclaimed. Right, and I suppose uh, now that I think about that further, we shouldn't be surprised by that, that he would be attacking the very things of God, attacking the people of God in, in hopes of taking them captive. Jesus comes and says, no, these people belong to me, and, and he does rebuke the demon. Before I get too far afield in the text, Dr. Giese, I want to uh, come back to the way Luke speaks of this person. He says, a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and, and later the people are going to be amazed that Jesus commands the unclean spirits. I want to talk a little bit about that, the way that he phrases it, unclean spirits or, or an unclean demon. In what sense are these—well, in what sense are the demons unclean? Why, why would Luke call them that? Well, let's look at the the opposite when one is forgiven, when the evil is covered over, when as wipes wiped clean as it does not exist, uh, there is a, a, a gift of uh, of purity, of cleanness, of the slate wiped clean. So that is the opposite of evil. In contrast, that which is evil, the connotation of unclean. So a doubler, so demonic force and emphasis of what's going on here. This is an uncleanness uh, that falls far short of the cleanness and the purity that is a, a gift of God. So this is total opposite and a rejection of everything that has to do with God. This is indeed that which has disowned that which is from God in that it is unclean. I wonder, too, as I was reflecting on that, you mentioned this at the beginning, that Luke emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit in connection mm -hmm. with Jesus. If if that phrasing, you know, calling them the unclean spirits also emphasizes, okay, Jesus is working in connection with the Holy Spirit. This demon is an unclean spirit. And again, just the the two two opposing sides here. And, and who's going to win? Well, of course, it's Jesus who has the Holy Spirit working with him. Uh, indeed, uh, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is something very significant in the book of Luke. We saw it at Jesus' baptism, temptation, at other significant uh, events. And yes, so totally in opposition to the, the Spirit uh, that is a member of the Trinity and is accompanying Jesus. So again, this is the opposite of, of anything uh, that uh, has to do with God. A spirit specifically an unclean one that opposes and here recognizes that he's about to be destroyed because the new era has come with this second Adam, the Son of God. So the scene has been set. The demon is facing off against Jesus, and we'll find out more about what happens on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 25th. We're studying Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44 with Dr. Curtis Giese. He is professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas. Dr. Giese, prior to the break, we set the scene. The demon has confronted Jesus. He knows what's coming. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then we get actually some words from Jesus here. In verse 35, Luke describes it like this. Jesus rebuked the demon and said, be silent, come out of him. And then he, he tells the results. It happens right then and there. The, the demon throws the man down, but then comes out of the man and had done him no harm, Luke notes. Tell us about that that encounter, the actual exorcism as Luke records it. Yeah, it's significant that Jesus uses the word of rebuke, of divine chastisement uh, immediately there and also for sickness. So we'll touch upon that as well. So Jesus shows his authority. He shows that he is the promised savior from Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the serpent's head. This word of rebuke indicates that this force of evil does not belong here. The new creation has come with the coming savior. And this word of rebuke is intended then to drive out uh, the force of evil that does not belong. So this Word of rebuke uh, indicates a change, a new era that is happening, and this word of authority from Jesus uh, does what it says. And as we see, be quiet, come out of him, and uh, the power of the Savior that crushes the forces of evil becomes obvious here as Jesus addresses this demon. The way you said that, the that the force of evil doesn't belong here, I think is a significant way of saying it. And and to go back to something that I brought up earlier, you know, that you have here the demon-possessed man seemingly on God's turf there in the synagogue where the Word of God is preached. You know, when you say the the force of evil doesn't belong here, I, I, I'm pretty sure you mean that much more broadly than it's not like, okay, okay, Satan, the synagogue doesn't belong to you, but you can have that spot outside the walls. I think what you're saying is Jesus is coming not just to expel Satan from the synagogue, but from from all of creation. It's a, this is a very mm-hmm. broad thing that Jesus is doing here. Indeed, this is. Uh, I like the way that, that James uh, describes it the, the the first fruits of a new creation, and in the new creation that Jesus is inaugurating, uh, indeed the impurity of the force of evil have no place. And he shows the beginning of this, the entrance, the inauguration of this new era where evil will be dispelled. And here we see a dispelling of it. There, the evil has no place in the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating in his saving work, especially culminates in his death and resurrection and anticipates his final second coming when all evil will be re- re- removed and eradicated. And here we see the beginning of it, of this new era. Hmm. 
So we get then after that the, the reaction of the crowds. And so far, it seems pretty consistent the way people are responding to Jesus. There's a lot of amazement or astonishment that every time he speaks or does something, those seem to be the reactions. Now, we have seen already the reaction of unbelief from Nazareth, but but once again here in Capernaum, it, it seems a little bit more positive. What I mean, how do, what do you make of the reaction of the crowds? Are they... Are they coming to faith? Are they? Is it just interest? What's what's going on here with the crowds and the way they're responding to Jesus? Well, this word of amazement is something that frequently appears when the word of Jesus is spoken. When uh, God in flesh here, uh, who is the word of God, speaks His word, they recognize that there is something special, and there is uh, amazement. Uh, perhaps it's not. Uh, articulated, whether they're brought to faith, that isn't specifically said, but they recognize that that something is going on here uh, that is uh, beyond what is, what is humanity. Uh, they have a hint here that uh, this is something extra special that's going on. And also, of course, as Luke records this, he records it very much for the reader, and the reader is read to confess why don't you recognize this? Why don't you confess immediately? We see that this is the Son of God. So this is very much a, a text that uh, leads the, the reader, by God's grace, to confess Jesus as the Savior, the, the great conqueror over the forces of, of evil as well. So a number of things going on here, both for the immediate audience that hear this, but as Luke writes for the audience uh, uh, that to whom he addresses, uh, there's a uh, God's word leading us to the confession that this is the promised Savior who destroys forces of evil as a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And, and in their reaction, they again make the connection between the word of Jesus and then the authority and the power of Jesus. You know, the, the, the question, what is this word? And then, you know, it's authority and power that he's got that he's commanding. So again, the, they see that connection how much they recognize at this point, you know, yeah, it's kind of, you don't know, but for us as the reader of Luke, certainly we're invited to make this connection and, and to put our trust in this one who has this authority by his word. So the the word begins to spread here. It, in verse 37, reports are going out into the surrounding region. That's going to become important as the text continues. Now, in verse 38, there's a bit of a scene change because Jesus is going to leave the synagogue, and he goes into Simon's house. Now, for, for readers of the New Testament, we know who Simon is, but this is the first time, I think, that he's been introduced in Luke's narrative. Can you just briefly remind us, who is this Simon that Luke brings up here? So Simon Peter, Peter the rock, great disciple of Jesus, who made bold and important confessions of, of faith at certain points and other points. He failed Jesus miserably, denying him three times. A uh, fisherman uh, called to be a fisher of men, according to the call of Jesus for him to become an apostle. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, became a, a great apostle. Uh, wrote the books of First and Second Peter, and uh, along with James, as one of the great leaders of the early church, who spoke, uh, who rather a was a part of the Jerusalem Council, so very significant leader of early Christianity, and we see here that he was married, mentioned his mother-in-law, and he is from this area of Capernaum, where he was active in his uh, fishing business until he received the call from Jesus. So yeah, he's he's married, as you said. It's his mother-in-law who's ill, and she's got a high fever. Luke notes the 
the disease that she's got makes sense, him being a physician. They ask Jesus, please help. And he does. And, and this, I think, is the point where we really want to take a look. Jesus rebukes the fever, the same language that he that was used when he spoke to the demon. He rebuked the demon. He rebukes the fever. What is what is this? What's the connection? Why, why the same language? Uh, this is noteworthy because what Jesus is uh, affecting here are both consequences of the entrance of sin into the world of creation being corrupted. We saw that once again, when Luke brings us back to the creation context and there through the uh, work of Satan, evil entered into the hearts of Adam and Eve as they rebelled against God. So the entrance of evil, but also the entrance of sickness and death. They're all unwelcome corruption of creation, indeed humanity. And here we see it affecting this mother-in-law. So Jesus treats, Jesus treats these effects of sin, a corrupted world. Similarly, he rebukes the force of evil, something that entered into humanity and creation. And also he rebukes the sickness, uh, also an effect of sin into the world. Uh, but through this rebuke, this woman is, by the grace of, of God, healed. And so she is saved from brink of death, her body restored. And so also this is a, a preview, a down payment, a hint of the resurrection of restored body by the saving work of Christ. So here we have a, another indication of the entrance, inauguration of a new era where life by the grace of God will be the gift with renewed bodies uh, that our Savior has enacted. One of the, the things that I find very significant about this and, and recognizing this is that when Jesus does these miracles of healing, which there's going to be more recorded in this text in a very general way, but there are more healings in this text, this is, it's more than Jesus like showing off his power. And it's, it's even more than Jesus showing there's something more about me than meets the eye. This is Jesus actually doing what he's come to do, that he, part of his his ministry as the Son of God, who has come to succeed where Adam failed and to undo what Adam's sin brought into the world, he has to do these healings, that, that these healings, as you put it, are a down payment of what is to come in the resurrection. And so it's, I don't know, I this is something that I, I, I've thought more about over my well, probably since I was in your class learning Greek all the way now to being a pastor, that you know, that when we look at Jesus' ministry of healing, we need to see it in that way as pointing us forward to the resurrection more than Jesus just saying, hey, I'm, I'm someone important. That's, that's true, but there's a bigger thing going on, and it, I mean, it really does point us toward the end of all things, the resurrection of all flesh and the life of the world to come. That is definitely the case, and, and it, it gives us a great hope. We have incredible gifts in our baptism in Jesus Christ, not only baptized into his bed death, but we are people of the resurrection. And uh, again, uh, both Paul and also James speak about the first fruits that we have already of being part of the new creation. So it's not simply an anticipation of what is to come. We give thanks that we already have those gifts of being resurrection and new creation people now by the saving work of Jesus. So how does that uh, look in our lives? How are we blessed to uh, carry out our vocations as people of this 
resurrection, new creation, a gift that we already have in a first fruits form. So it is indeed an incredible blessing that we have. And that also brings us back to Isaiah 61 that was spoken as Jesus was in Nazareth, where he does speak about uh, that he was sent to proclaim freedom for prisoners, uh, recovery, sight for the blind, and release to the oppressed. And he is exactly doing that in the words of our text, as here, Peter's mother-in-law was oppressed by sickness. That is ultimately a result of sin, or uh, the, the person who is demon-possessed, a prisoner of the force of evil, and also oppressed. So here, Jesus is acting in fulfillment of uh, uh, what the promised Messiah would do. So it is exactly uh, in fulfillment of what uh, was prophesied long ago and now is being carried out. Does this, just this, this conversation, I think it helps us to to think more theologically about our own sicknesses. And I mean, the last two years or so have given a lot of opportunity, I think, for our, our whole world to think, hopefully, theologically about sickness. And I mean, it, it seems that when, you know, when, when I come down with an illness, recognizing that that is one of the effects of sin upon the world that I experience— when I become sick, then it becomes an opportunity for me to examine myself, to repent, to to recognize you know, what what the cause, what happens because of sin, and then when the Lord grants me healing in this life, should He choose to do so, that becomes an opportunity not only to rejoice over that temporal blessing, but also to look forward to the eternal blessing that I know will come on the last day. I mean, I think just that. I don't know. It seems like in our world today, getting sick and getting well has become almost a very regular thing. Thanks be to God that that sickness has been very much, you know, it's not as bad as, say, this serious fever would have been for Peter's mother-in-law 2,000 years ago. Thanks be to God for that. But sometimes it's become such a part of life that sometimes I think we forget about this you know, this reality of that sickness was not what God intended, but Jesus has come to restore all things. And so when I get well, that should be a reminder of the eternal healing that God's going to give me on, on the last day. Does that make sense, Dr. Kesey? Oh, that, that, is, that is indeed so important uh, to remember the way that God intended and created his creation. When he said it was very good, that means uh, no shortcoming, no sickness, no suffering, no death. That was her, his original intention. And because, once again, bring us to the creation context, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and uh, did not act with gratitude and thanks, but sought their own way. They brought sickness upon themselves. Now, when we look at sickness and in, in, in this day and age, we can't say, okay, because of that sin, I have this sickness, and that's not the thing to look for, but just to realize that indeed sickness is result generally of sin in this world and thanks be to God for medicine and the healing when it does come. But it is an appropriate opportunity to repent, to confess our, our fallenness, our weakness, and to uh, confess that our hope is not within ourselves, but outside of ourselves for the Savior who has come and who, by his grace, uh, will also restore our bodies who are objects of his creation, his salvation. Our bodies are important. And by his grace, uh, they will be resurrected and restored. And uh, this healing is a, a preview, as mentioned, a down payment of that. Once again, we are first fruits of that resurrection, new creation. And thanks be to God, he will eradicate uh, the effects of sin and evil also in the 
the form of sickness. So this is good news here in this text that Jesus heals this woman as a preview of the ultimate healing of our bodies that we'll receive at the great resurrection. Yeah, certainly. God be praised. God be praised. What I love I love in this text how, you know, Jesus rebukes the fever, the fever leaves, and then her reaction, I know it's very brief in the text, but it, it's always struck me as, as just, I, I think it's important. She gets up and begins to serve. This is the the appropriate response from receiving a gift of, of Jesus. You get up and, and you serve your neighbor in love because Jesus has healed you. Uh, that, that definitely the case. Uh, also in, in this age, as we <clears throat> are raised, uh, having been forgiven, we are raised also in this life to serve, to uh, attend to our vocations. And she is, uh, as she saw, given the vocation of taking care of others in her household. And she was raised from a deathbed uh, to serve others. That is what she joyfully did. And that's what she immediately did. Uh, using the gifts that God had given her to serve others. That is noteworthy and significant and important. And it, and it shows a sacred aspect to the, the work that we are given to do, that we're raised to do in our baptism. Now, from this point, then, it's almost like—and maybe you can mention this briefly, Dr. Giese, it's like the text starts to work its way back to where we came from. So we've we've had specific teaching in Capernaum, a specific casting out of demon there, and now a specific healing, and now it's like the text is going to work its way back through all of those things in a summary fashion. Yeah, it's it's noteworthy. This is a, a, an artistic literary device known as chiasm, where there's a uh, one part at the beginning and a matching similar portion toward the end. Uh, so also we had a word of amazement at Jesus' teaching and proclamation. So also at the end of our text, casting out a demon that we just looked at, casting out a demon toward the end, and then healing of Peter's mother-in-law and then healing of additional diseases. So this is uh, sophisticated artistry and the presentation of Luke as he's inspired to write. Uh, so this is great uh, inspired literature and noteworthy in its uh, sophistication artistry and the way that it's presented for uh, for effect. One of the things I want to make sure, because we've got about nine minutes left, so I want to make sure there's a couple things I, want, I know we want to talk about. One is, is the titles that we get for Jesus, and those come up particularly in his interactions, once again, with demons. When the demons are, are rebuked, they're crying out that Jesus is the Son of God, and then Jesus won't let them speak because they know that he's the Christ. Talk a little bit about both of those titles for Jesus that are announced here in this text. Jesus has indeed proclaimed the Son of God. That was a declaration also at his baptism as the uh, the Father and the Spirit there. Once again, the Spirit hovering just as he was at creation there. His divinity is proclaimed, but also, uh, if you're, as we recall in the genealogy, there, Adam is called the Son of God, and Jesus, as a God in flesh, is also the Son of God. So we see both his divinity and his humanity in that as well. And then in this very short space, uh, incredible great names of the Savior, so also the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who was proclaimed and designated to save. So these are very significant names of who Jesus is, and what he would do in his saving and powerful work as uh, uh, the demon now recognizes and proclaims that, yeah, this is a time of destruction of evil because the Savior, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, 
has now come in the flesh. It, it strikes me that here the demons are crying out, you are the son of God. And and it, in the devil's temptation previously, that was part of it. But he was, if you are the son of God. And, you know, the demons know who Jesus is. And you see it very clearly here. One, one question that's often asked of this text is why Jesus doesn't let them speak this truth. Because it is true that he is the son of God. Why, why might Jesus have silenced the demons, not wanting them to speak that that he is the son of God, the Christ? And this may be a... Uh, something that occurs, especially in the book of Mark, that in the context of miracles, including uh, exercising demons, Jesus silences uh, them. Uh, it may be an indication that we're looked to, to look to something else for the emphasis of Jesus, not the glorious miracles, uh, dazzling things of the focus and mission of Jesus, but he ultimately came to die for us on the cross and rise in victory. So it could be he's directing us to something else that is yet to come, the ultimate way in which you destroy the forces of evil and save humanity. There's something else yet to come. And I think that may be indicated also in the change in location that is uh, noted at the end of our text, a switch from Capernaum to Judea. Uh, in the book of Luke, there's often the note that Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, there, the focus of Jesus' ministry is going to be in Jerusalem. As he, uh, In his last week, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And also then, uh, Friday, when he'll die on the cross, the sacrifice for all humanity, and then his glorious resurrection. There's a focus of what will happen in Judea, specifically in Jerusalem. So that Jesus may be pointing us to that, that he's not mainly a miracle worker, not mainly a, a glory figure, but one of sacrifice and rescue through his saving work if he's what's going to do in Jerusalem. I think that that also comes through in the fact then that Jesus is asked to stay the next day. So this would be Sunday now. It was Sabbath. Now we're on the first day of the week. He's going to leave. The people try to stop him, and we get some more words from Jesus. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. We probably could have spent the whole time on just this phrase from Jesus. But Dr. Gizzi, with, with these last couple of minutes here, help us into to what Jesus says, particularly the phrase, the good news of the kingdom of God. That's such a, a loaded term in the New Testament. So that word good news there is the gospel, that saving word. I mean, actually, here is the, uh, so he's, going to, he's sent to preach this saving word. So the gospel is about uh, the Christ who has come to save and destroy the force of evil. But here that this kingdom of God is the entrance, the inauguration of a new era of the gracious reign and rule of God. So that dispels the uh, forces of evil, cleanses sin. So this new era, he is there to proclaim this message of the entrance, the saving reign and rule of God. And this is again in fulfillment of what he said in Nazareth, that he was sent to preach the good news to the poor. There that term occurs again. He is carrying out his stated mission. Sent so me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. To, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is doing exactly what he had said he would, and he is uh, traveling various areas and heading toward 
Jerusalem, Judea specifically for that in his proclamation and in his actions to be the Savior of the world. Mm, yeah, so we, we see there at the end of this text, again, a starting, at least a hint, if nothing else, a hint that things are, are starting to widen here, that, that what's yeah. going to start here in Galilee is going to, to go elsewhere. And, and as you said, we'll hear that Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. You know, and I think even just the word that, that's there in the English, I must do these things, that necessity that we've seen from Jesus even already as a 12-year-old boy, you know, he's not just sort of doing these things happenstance, but he's he's going somewhere, and that somewhere, is, as we know, is Jerusalem. Dr. Giese, with about two and a half minutes left, help us to, to summarize this text, point us to the good news from the end of Luke chapter 4 as we've seen it today. As mentioned, Jesus here is portrayed as the second Adam, one who uh, goes back to the creation setting and this time gets it right. Uh, so much difficulty, as you mentioned, this age with so much sickness, so we can relate very much to uh, the situation of Peter's mother-in-law, as I have the blessing of serving at Concordia University of Texas here. There are uh, students who uh, come down with, with COVID, God, thanks be to God, they recover, but just a reminder of the sin sickness that is around us, in us, we see it in creation and various tornadoes, storms, uh, difficulties, but we, thanks be to God, have a Savior who has come as the second Adam to inaugurate a new creation, and we have the first fruits blessings of that, of his victory over the forces of evil, and the blessing that sickness will not be the last word, that disease will not, and we have here um, an indication of his saving work, of the fact that he is the promised Savior to destroy the force of evil, to uh, crush the serpent's head, and also a terrible effect of entrance of sin into the world, to heal sickness and actually to point to the ultimate healing in the resurrection. This is good news of comfort for the difficulties, struggles, ailments that face us, to give us hope that the ultimate word, gift that will be given to us is victory in Christ because of the Savior that has come, and the Savior that will soon come to finish his saving work and bring a new creation and the day of resurrection. The Reverend Dr. Curtis Giese is professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas, also the author of commentaries on James, 2 Peter, and Jude in the Concordia Commentary Series from CPH, helping us today with Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. Dr. Giese, thanks for being our guest today. An honor to be with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 4 or any uh, questions on the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>